0: Welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Deborah Campbell, a professor of nonfiction writing at the University of Victoria's Writing Department. And I'm also a, an author of nonfiction books and magazine articles. And hi there,
1: I'm uh, David Leach, also a professor of writing at the University of Victoria. Well, welcome back, uh, Deborah. First off, I'd like to uh, apologize to our neglected listeners around the world after our long hiatus. Uh, Deborah and I took the summer off to write, which I think is uh, is deserved and is important for all writers, uh, but then got a little bit busy over the fall and, and didn't get to recording an episode. And now Deborah is on study leave working on a, a big book. So we we, we may not get together uh, again until next fall, but we did want to emerge <clears throat> from our podcast silence to interview a very, very special guest who um, visited the university last fall and and gave an Orion Lecture in the Fine Arts. So we are really thrilled to have here JB, AKA James um, McKinnon, uh, here to talk about his new book, the, Day the World Stops Shopping How Ending Consumerism Saves the World and Ourselves. Welcome, James.
2: Thanks so much. Great to be, uh, I think,
1: back. <laughs> well, I, we'll begin with uh, the, just the broad question. Like, what brought you to this kind of bold and, and broad concept for uh, a book? Uh,
2: I think really I've been thinking about consumerism and consumption for most of my life. Uh, you know, I, I worked at Adbusters magazine at one point, uh, which of course is a magazine that's focused on issues of consumption and consumerism. Um, but more recently, what I had realized is that in my work as an environmental journalist, it was just becoming clearer and clearer that whatever environmental crisis I turn towards, if I dug into the root causes of it, it, it was just, it was consumption. It was consumerism. It was, it was how much stuff, uh, how many services, how many experiences we buy and use. And, uh, so I also realized that this was a topic that wasn't really a major part of the public discourse anymore. So I thought I could write a book and maybe, kind of drag this really urgent subject back into the limelight.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me as, as one of those uh, hiding in plain sight topics, you know, we, we think about uh, all the things we need to do to uh, improve our relationship with the environment, to halt climate change, and there's a lot of... Um, uh, techniques put forward, uh, moving to you know green technology and so forth, green energy, but we don't actually add up uh, what we're using that energy on, or what you know our lifestyles have to say about this. And so you decided to run this thought experiment. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure, I decided to make the make the shopping stop. So, <laughs> for the purposes of this book, I just decided that I would turn down global consumption by about twenty five percent. Was was the idea? Uh, obviously, you can't turn consumption off entirely because we we need to eat, we need to house ourselves, we theoretically need some clothing, uh, but uh, I thought I could turn it down. S- deeply and then play out what happened uh what would happen in terms of the planet the economy the way we make and do things and what would happen to ourselves and our our sense of ourselves who, who might we become uh so yeah that's the thought experiment that i built the book around
1: you you mentioned the influence of uh, Alan Wiseman's *The World Without Us*, which is a book I love, and a similar sort of thought experiment that also involves kind of travel research. But in some ways, it's I found it easier to imagine a world without humans than a human world without consumerism. So how do you how do you navigate that challenge when when writing this book to to kind of explore this uh, this event that it, for most of us is just so all pervasive that that. We, we feel like we can't escape it.
2: I think what I, I mean, what I took from Wiseman's book was not only the, the idea that maybe a thought experiment like this could work and be interesting, but also the idea that you could ground the whole thing in real life stories and case studies past, present, and, and potentially future. Um, so, you know, I didn't want it to be a book of, uh, Speculative nonfiction. I wanted it to be based on things that we could you know, look at and and uh, uh, think about that have that have occurred. Uh, that we could talk to real people who've experienced the uh, who have experienced circumstances where they stopped shopping or their culture stopped shopping. Um, I wanted to look at the economics of it. You know, look at case studies where consumption had come to a grinding halt or had slowed down drastically. And I want to be able to talk to to experts about all of those sorts of things. So that was the setting that as kind of a ground rule um, made it easier, I suppose, to get into the writing of the book itself, because there are only so many case studies that, that act as examples of these kinds of circumstances. So my first task was really just trying to find the individuals, uh, the circumstances, the case studies that I could look at and then see what I could draw out of those that would tell me something about the thought experiment I was working on.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Your, your writing um, uh, fits in a, in a, in a genre with Alan Weissman. And I, I, I don't, Want you to take this the wrong way, but a kind of Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell's ability to um, illuminate case studies, which I think is what makes his books really readable and popular. Although the 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 depths that you've gone to with this are are really profound. I, I I actually found that this was for me one of those books that really changed my way of looking at the world. And I speak as somebody who felt like I knew quite a lot about consumerism and is tend to be someone who's maybe on the voluntary simplicity side in general. Being a writer, I think that's a great way to live if you want to have time to write. (laughs) So maybe that's your own uh, beginnings as well, right? That's all all
2: you can do with the income as well. (laughs)
0: Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> Voluntary, involuntary, if you want to write, you, you have to let some other things go, right? Um, but you, you, what I found so brilliant about this book and so engaging were I mean, the case studies that you found. Um, so, and the, tra- the travel writing that goes into it as well. So you start out in the Kalahari. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? You're almost going back to the beginning of human society.
2: Yeah, in the Kalahari, I visited with a group of indigenous people who have 150,000 years of continuous presence on the same landscape. And throughout that time period, they have never developed a strong attachment to possessions. So they've never became people who accumulate either wealth or goods. Uh, They draw what they need off the land um, and they do so as required. So they're just constantly taking what they need over the next day or hour or the next few days at, at the most, really. Uh, and the reason I wanted to start there was because you, when you talk about this subject, you constantly encounter people who say, uh, well, we can't stop shopping because it's ingrained in us because we are hardwired to do it. And here is this 150,000 year example that emphatically proves that that is not the case. There's nothing genetically guaranteeing that we are going to be over consumers. It's It's a cultural phenomenon and a turn we took in our own societal histories.
1: Yeah, the other one that really jumped out at me was this kind of concept, and excuse me if I mispronounce it, of of wabi-sabi, and your kind of consideration of it as well, which kind of speaks to this notion that, yeah, with globalization, we... tricks us into thinking all of these values like consumerism have been globalized, but w- w- wabi-sabi is this both aesthetic and, and a philosophical kind of uh, way of seeing things. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it and its importance?
2: Yeah, I mean, wabi-sabi is a Japanese concept that um, I guess you could say it's, it's a way of appreciating aging uh, or weathering Uh, It's a way of appreciating things as they grind through time. And um, yeah, what's interesting about it is that right now we are just so focused on novelty and the newness, not not just things being new to our imaginations, but also things actually looking brand new, you know, spick and span, increasingly in a city like Vancouver, where I live, you're just overwhelmed by the fact that all you know, almost all the cars going by look new. The clothes that people wear look like they've never been worn before. And this is an increasingly important value in this society. Uh, Wabi sabi suggests that there's a completely different aesthetic that we could turn to. That there's a completely different appreciation and relationship, uh, appreciation for and relationship with goods that we can have, and that is to to have them, to care for them, to keep them with us for a long time, to appreciate how they look as they undergo wear and tear and weathering and develop a patina, and to allow our possessions to accumulate the stories of our lives and become uh, precious to us through that process. So, uh, yeah, Wabi Sabi is a very... One way, I guess, I think of how how important it is is when we think about what a lower consuming society might look like one thing that often comes up is the idea of durability of goods and of course that makes sense if you're going to buy fewer goods you're probably going to buy the goods that you buy are are going to be made to last and durable so that you can use them for a long time but then i spoke to some waste specialists and they pointed out well that's all well and good but landfills are already full. Of goods that never reached their their full lifespans. People got tired of them before that, or fashions changed and they got rid of them before they had lived, before these things had been used as, as much as they could be used. So that suggests that what's needed is a different relationship, a more enduring, not just more durable goods, but a more enduring relationship with our goods. And Wabi Sabi is that philosophy and that aesthetic that allows us to do that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it made me think about um, even the movement towards, say, uh, uh, zero waste, sometimes it comes with the kind of idea that you need to get rid of a lot of things that you have and get, you know, new shiny glass jars for all of your um, uh, bulk food rather than using the old Tupperware that's been kicking around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just the the constant ways that we seem to find to to purchase the new, regardless of our our our, our motives. Um, yet something that really uh, struck me, and there were so many things actually that struck me, were um, how difficult it is, though, if you aren't involved in. Com- commercial culture. I mean, for a lot of people like writers, I guess a lot of us choose not to be because we choose to spend our time uh, writing for very little money, (laughs) quite a lot of the time. Um, So and because our friends are also like that a lot of the time, it's not so difficult. Um, But if you aren't participating in commercial culture, if you're not say meeting your friends at the pub or the restaurant or taking your kids out to an amusement park or to a lot of places that you go um, to be with people require, have an admission charge. And so you almost have to consume if you wanna walk in the door. Um, Can you talk about how much consumerism has in some ways i would say even eradicated culture i mean you also talk about the fact that we we have shopping 24/7 now so
2: yeah it's certainly become overwhelming and and fills every hour of the day particularly through our connections to our to our phones i mean we are in constant interaction with a product and that product is frequently trying to sell us things and when it's not trying to sell us things, it's gathering the data necessary to to do so in the future. So we, you know, we are certainly um, entirely embedded in consumer culture almost every second of the day. Uh, But in terms of this, like how difficult it is to participate or how increasingly difficult it is to participate in society as anything other than a consumer I, I took that question, I suppose, to Barking and Dagenham, which is a, a, a borough on the outskirts of London. And it's, it's actually the, the lowest income uh, borough outside of London, but it's also the site of what is the, currently the world's largest experiment in participatory culture. So this is a, an effort to give people the opportunity to participate in their community in all kinds of different ways. They can learn skills from other people. They can make things together. They can cook together. They can, um, they can go out onto the streets and uh, create art or plant flowers or trees. They can shape their community in a sense in that way. Um, basically, it's all kinds of opportunities for people to to work and play and visit with one another. And these are organized uh, somewhat ironically, I think, or, or maybe cheekily through, uh, through, through things that they call shops. And they, they are storefronts in the same way that any other shop is. But when you walk in, there's nothing for sale, but there are many, many opportunities to, uh, to get involved in activities uh, on tap at, at these shops. So what, what really struck me, I mean, obviously, this is an interesting thing. And, it, you know, these, these, these uh, things that people get to participate in are free. There's no money exchanged. That's all really interesting. But re- what really struck me was the fact that in this borough, uh, because a lot of people are low-income earners, when I asked them, well, what would you be doing if you weren't, um, if you weren't participating in these activities? What would you be doing? When I asked that question, I expected people to say, oh, we'd be down at the mall or, you know, yeah, we'd be, we'd be eating uh, fast food at whatever that restaurant on the corner. uh, We'd be off at the amusement park. Uh, Maybe just even we'd be watching Netflix on TV. I don't know, but that's not what they said. What they said was we'd be doing nothing. You know, there's nothing available. If you don't have the income to consume in consumer culture, then you're just excluded. And it was really affecting to watch people step from that kind of exclusion in the society we've built into this really rich participatory role um, that was just so obviously powerful uh, in in these people's lives. I mean, there were people who were going to these shops uh, to participate every single day.
1: Yeah, I love I love that uh, chapter. I mean. The whole book is so wonderful but uh, in, in part because I accidentally spent some time embarking once but also because I've kind of uh, visited and, and written about like communes and eco-villages and all of these intentional communities that set themselves apart to kind of come up with these alternative ways of living but are, are then therefore kind of easily kind of dismissed and ignored by the mainstream and here this one as you say was embedded in in uh, like a storefront and, and deeply kind of part of the community and providing kind of alternative ways of living. I mean, I think the book contains um, many surprises, and I think that's one of the, the, the things that define like literary nonfiction versus conventional nonfiction, the sense that the, the reader can be surprised, and I think the author as as well. Uh, I, I think one of the surprises as well is that one of the heroes of your story is or seems to be Levi's Jeans. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about some of the, the surprising things that you learned on this journey? Obviously, you kind of came into this book knowing more than most people about the the kind of power and influence of consumerism but what what surprised you
2: well i mean the way i wouldn't have done this book if i didn't think there were new things that could be said about consumerism and uh i really settled on the idea that i would write on this topic when i realized yeah you know there's a lot more to this than just um live simply or less is more, you know, the kind of bumper sticker expressions of, of this idea, Uh, because of course it is in fact true that if everybody woke up tomorrow and said less is more and, uh, I'm going to live simply, then we would have an immediate and, uh, terrible economic crash. And so, you know, I think, Although I, I recognize that, really absorbing how incredibly dependent our economy has become on consumption was, was an enduring surprise for me <laughs> throughout this process. And, and continues to surprise me because I, uh, you know, I'm constantly being asked uh, by media, in they will say, on the one hand, uh, geez, we should all live more simply. Shouldn't, shouldn't we? I mean, look at it, look at our lifestyles. It's crazy. And then I say, yeah, that's true. And then the moment I say, yeah, that's true. They say, oh, you know, (laughs) what about the economy? You know? (laughs) And uh, so we're constantly being caught in this catch 22. Um, but what I think ultimately, uh, I took away from the experience that was, um, I don't know if I'd say surprising, but, it was, it was a point of significant uncertainty when I started the book is, whether I would come away from this saying like, yes, we can do this, we can reduce consumption and still have uh, a stable functioning society or, or no, we can't. And I did, I, when I set out, I really wasn't sure uh, which, way I would, which way I would fall on that. But I've certainly come out of the process uh, emphatically with the belief that we can, uh, we can reduce consumerism, and, and we will still have a society and a civilization. Um,
0: one of one of my favorite interviews. You have a lot of brilliant interviews in here, and uh, as much as we're talking about ideas, uh, just as a little aside here, as a nonfiction writer, you're always interviewed about ideas rather than. The writing, like a novelist's get. Um, but this—the uh, writing in this book uh, really blew me away. And some of the way the characters come to life. And my favorite happens to be Abdullah Al mahar in Bangla- in Bangladesh, and he is this uh, this guy who runs. Uh, correct me if I if I if I don't have it right. Um, uh, one of those uh, fast fashion factories, or, or several of them. And um, he is so outspoken about as a a critic of fast fashion. Can you talk about that interview? And how did you get him to talk to you like
2: that? That was a really, you know, I'm sure both of you know from writing nonfiction that sometimes you just win the lottery. You know, sometimes you're working hard to make something happen. And then it's just like uh, it happens often in some extraordinary, unexpected way. And pays off uh, much more than you would have anticipated. This was definitely one of those situations because I, I knew that I wanted to have. Uh, I knew that it was unavoidable that I should speak to the people who produce all of these consumer goods, uh, particularly clothing that we that we use in the in the rich Western democracies. Um, and I thought, well, you know, we've heard from we hear fairly often from the people who work in the factories. Those stories have been told quite a bit. And I thought, well, I'm going to ask one of the people who runs one of those factories, because I thought who else on earth is going to more vigorously defend Western consumption than somebody who runs a company that makes all of its money from Western consumption. So um, I didn't really know how to access one of those people and I had been thinking about it and all of a sudden, I think it is H&M, um, that announced that they were going to post online what factory made the, made whatever garment from H&M, uh, you were going to buy. So I jumped on their website and found not only the factories, but, um, uh, in some cases their, their, uh, addresses and contact information and things like this so utterly at random i picked i think i picked this one shirt just because it was it had a funny looking cloud on it and i just thought this is a classic consumeristic product <laughs> and I'll, I'll look up uh who made that and i sent out a uh, an email and i heard back from the ceo of that factory Abdullah al um almost instantly like it was as though he was just waiting to to hear from somebody on this subject and uh so yeah immediately i got in touch and we spoke and he you know his position was the absolute opposite of what i'd anticipated rather than being the fiercest defender of western consumerism i could imagine he was a scathing critic of it
0: and so quotable uh no so quotable yeah <laughs> he says things like uh he he's asked about you know he's talking about his plan their original plan to be a model of social envir- and environmental responsibility and then he says nobody pays for that nobody gives a shit about that
2: <laughs> yeah no he's uh he's he's very uh, forthright and um and he's very angry uh i mean he's an, he's an, he's He's a cheerful, wonderful man to talk to. And yet, at the same time, he's clearly very angry about what uh, Western consumerism has done to his country. And um, he's you know he they are over there producing incredible i mean david you asked me about things that surprised me something that surprised me is that there are factories out there that produce 200,000 articles of clothing a day wow a day uh, so he runs one of those and um and yeah he says well you know what what does it look like from where i'm sitting he sees his industry being squeezed and nickeled and dimed constantly by the apparel industry, uh, you know, the global apparel industry constantly trying to get factories like his to, to drive down costs, uh, to produce more things. So, you know, for the people who work for him, it means, uh, more and more, uh, a more and more stressful work environment, more and more demand for productivity. Uh, he sees his, you know, the country, cutting corners on environmental uh, standards in order to to keep the costs down so that we can buy in Western nations a shirt for four dollars or a um, or or worse. I mean, you have these these fill a bag sales that I've heard about <laughs> where um, you you just go into a store and you stuff a bag with as many things as you can and you pay, Five pounds in England or something, you know these sorts of figures. Um, even more strikingly, not only he but he says everybody who works in his factory is aware that these are the prices we pay, and are they are offended that their labor is so little valued in places like Canada, the United States, and Western Europe, uh, and around the world that um, that this is what we pay for the sweat they've put into it and, and the, and the tremendous costs to their country.
1: Amazing. Well, one of the other things that uh, struck me as well is just like the context in which you kind of wrote uh, uh, this book. I mean, I'm I mean, assuming you began kind of pre-pandemic, and and then uh, the the pandemic hit, which in in many ways kind of uh, uh, illustrated uh, both sides of of uh, your topic: this sudden kind of uh, um, drop in economic activity, and and what that kind of allowed, and then the kind of panic buying and impulse buying, and and the way that kind of Amazon, in particular, kind of benefited from it through that kind of seamless ability of just to kind of uh buy stuff online and uh, amazon interestingly enough having begun in the book business as well and now expanding to kind of uh, uh, surround the world so can you talk a little bit about uh yeah the 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 process of kind of researching and writing and even promoting a book through through the pandemic that also kind of um uses that lens to kind of understand the subject of consumerism
2: sure i mean from a personal perspective it was uh it was it was a really intimidating moment i suppose because i was almost finished the book i had one more i'd done most of the writing i had one more research research trip that i wanted to do and that was to china obviously that didn't happen uh but you know then this pandemic took hold and i was able to see pretty quickly that the thought experiment that I had set up in my book was playing out in real life in front of my eyes. At the same time, as you both know from having written books, I was completely exhausted. <laughs> so uh, I had to really gear up um, to get, you know, to get back into it. And I didn't. I I thought for a bit. Well, maybe I can just tack on a chapter at the end where I say, "Oh yeah," then the pandemic came and some interesting stuff happened, but. I decided that wouldn't really be uh, well. It wasn't what I, the approach I wanted to take. It wouldn't really be commensurate to the kind of case study that the pandemic was. So, instead, I went back through the book and identified all of the places where the pandemic was providing better information, uh, more a more was acting as a more compelling case study than material that I had that I had at that time in the book. And I rewrote all of those sections. So uh, it was revised throughout uh, almost every chapter, I suppose, uh, was was revised somewhat to quite substantially. Um, So, yeah, that was quite a quite a process. Um, And of course, it was changing all the time. You know, as you say, it went from it went from a real world that stopped shopping to a world that uh, was you know, hoovering (laughs) the goods in through, um, through online shopping. So yeah, it was just, just a situation that was constantly, constantly changing, but it was also constantly illuminating. And, uh, in the end, uh, it also had the, you know, the paradoxical effect in in my case of, uh, making it quite difficult to move the book out into the world. you know, it's very difficult. Uh, people were buying a lot of things, but they weren't necessarily buying every book that was out there. And uh, it was a difficult time to to bring a book to market. Absolutely.
0: Well, I think this is a book that they, they definitely should be buying. Um, if if uh they want to be rethinking their relationship with the natural world and with themselves i think this is really what it's about at least at least for me it was about your relationship with yourself with society in some ways about the nature of what a good life looks like um that isn't uh participating in some of the um consumer culture to the extent to do harm um and uh yeah, and, and, and you do really touch on uh, things about the natural world that I hadn't even thought of, some of the invisible ways that um, uh, consumption affects nature. For example, I had never thought about what land clearing, I mean, we, we're in a real estate boom as well, uh, where I live in Vancouver, uh, really across all over the place. We're, we're, we're bulldozing and clearing and building things. And I don't know that you have this great quote, maybe you imagine the animals simply packed their bags and made a fresh start somewhere new. I regret to inform you, this is not the case. Um, was this sort of thing surprising to you? I guess you you know your your work on A, a Once in Future World, your your selling book on um, on nature uh, has attuned you to some of these things, perhaps, and also some of your writing for Atlantic on um, say the right whale. Um, can you talk a little bit about consumerism and nature?
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, in some ways there are some ways that consumerism affects the natural world and affects other species that, that I was pretty familiar with, but there was, there's kind of a routine destruction that happens through consumerism that I hadn't really contemplated. And that is things like just, you know, every time you develop a, another suburb of big box stores, um, that's eating up habitats often eating up quite high quality habitat uh, all any form of land clearing, the ownership of second houses around the world, uh, you know, is a, is a major trend. And it's a lot of those houses are country houses or they're vacation houses on a shoreline uh, or these sorts of things. And these are having really significant impact on other species. But the the species, I think, that exemplified this for me and became the big example I use in the book is the North Atlantic right whale, which is a critically endangered species. There's only a few hundred of them left. And uh, they were saved from whaling a long time ago. Uh, we stopped hunting them, deliberately hunting and killing them a long time ago. And yet they, are, uh, they have struggled to regain historical numbers and, in fact, uh, often appear to be in decline. so you know what's happening there And it turns out one of the well there there are two uh, aspects of this that are very tightly tied to consumerism and one is is very well uh, blunt we can say and that is that they get run over by boats and the boats that are probably most lethal to them are cargo ships. So I spoke to a whale conservationist and he said in effect every time you hit the buy now button on amazon you are helping to load a cargo ship that's going to run through water that's that is where the whales live and has a chance of striking them and killing them in the same way that a deer might be killed uh, at the side of a highway um so this was you know there just can't be a more direct connection between everyday consumption and harm done, um, you know very serious harm done in the environment than that. And the other is uh, that the whales lives are now pervaded by noise and the noise comes from really just the buzz of human activity. It's the search for the resources under the sea that we need to produce consumer goods. Uh, many, of those goods, many green consumer goods, for example, um, the, the green future is is turning more and more to mining the sea for the resources and the metals and minerals and so on that we will need to produce wind farms and solar panels and so on, uh, car batteries. Um, it, the noise is just the accumulation of pleasure boats that that uh, people buy if they you know make make enough money to. To purchase one, um, it's just the buzz of human existence in the modern consumer world that's driving down the health and well being uh, of North Atlantic right whales. But uh, I think we can say that those whales are standing in for all the other species that are being affected every day in myriad ways by that, that hum of commercial activity that has become the norm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of what you do in the book of kind of connecting this sort of uh, huge, abstract, global phenomenon, but kind of bringing it down to that, that particular impact. Well, maybe we, we can kind of uh, uh, move from the noise of human existence to the the poetry of your prose. Do you have a passage that you'd uh, like to read for us? Just a brief excerpt to uh, wet the appetite of, of book buyers on our podcast? <laughs> Uh, I think what
2: I would do is read from the the uh, the opening section. Uh, hopefully I'm not gonna tire you out too much with this excerpt, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go straight to the Kalahari again, as I mentioned, and uh, just trying to just see if there's anything in this reading that I should alert you to, but... I don't think so. So I'll just jump in. Uh, High noon in the Kalahari desert of Namibia in southwestern Africa. So hot that your lungs turn into leather with every breath. A scrubland that looks like it would cut you, prick you, catch in your clothes, spreads in every direction. Close by, but too far to want to walk to in this heat, is a scattering of thatched roof mud huts the same color as the red gold sand. Two decades into the 21st century, the scene is remarkable for the near absence of things. A couple of sunbeaten plastic chairs, faded clothing on a huddle of young hunters, a triangle of scrap metal that holds a battered teapot over low coals. A bow and a quiver of arrows leans in a doorless doorway. An older hunter sits beneath a woebegone tree, patch of shade so small that it can hardly hold two people without knocking their knees together. The hunter's name is a difficult one for outsiders. He goes by Gitkau. You can also think of him as having a trim gray gray goatee, a face lined more by laughter than worry, and the lean, muscled look of a long-distance runner. I have noticed in other villages that some men don't hunt and don't even have hunting tools. When the sun rises, they are just in their houses until sunset. But in this village, we continue and we will continue, Gitkao says. If you come on hard times, if the honeymoon is over, you must be able to do things for yourself. Denhui is the village Gitkao lives in. And it is not untouched by the modern world. Gitkao sits in a blue plastic chair. He's wearing clothes including a shining cowboy-style belt buckle he bought at a secondhand clothing stall in Chumkwe. But Gikkha's dinner tonight will be kudu antelope meat, stewed in wild vegetables. He doesn't hunt with a gun. He has a bow made of forged gruia wood that is strung with sinews taken from the spine of an antelope. He makes arrow shafts from the thick, hollow stems of tall grass and poisons his arrowheads with beetle larvae he dug out of the ground and crushed. His quiver is a tube of tough bark from the fat root of a false umbrella thorn tree, which he had dug up, cut, and then roasted until he could remove its core with only a tap from his hand. Sometimes he makes a smaller quiver and a handful of unpoisoned arrows to sell to the areas for few tourists. But these are not skills he preserves for their value in the marketplace. They are the ways and means of his daily life. Kika will tell you he is one of the Jukwanzi. Sounds a bit like Jukwanzi, which in his language means true people. Most outsiders, on the other hand, know them as the Bushmen of the Kalahari, or sometimes the Sun, having seen them and heard their unusual click language in National Geographic specials or the classic comedy, The Gods Must Be Crazy. In 1964, a Canadian anthropologist named Richard B. Lee, still in his 20s, began more than a year with the Juanzi, doing research that would later be lauded as among the most important in 20th century science. When Lee arrived in the Kalahari Desert, anthropologists, like outsiders in general, saw hunting and gathering as a desperate struggle to survive, a stage of development nearer to wild animals than to contemporary human beings. Lee decided to test those assumptions empirically. He spent a month recording exactly how much each person in the camp used their time. Another much totting up the calories in everything the Juken ate, and so on. His findings showed that the hunter-gatherer lifestyle could, in fact, be a good one. By some measures, it might be better than life in industrialized nations. To start with, the Juken didn't work very hard. On average, they put in about 30 hours a week, acquiring food and taking care of chores, such as cooking and gathering firewood. At the time, a typical person in the first affluent society, America, was putting in 31 hours a week on the job, then going home to do their share of an average 22 hours per household on chores. More strikingly, the hardest working person Lee observed, a man named Roma, was logging 32 hours a week as a hunter, a far cry from the 60-plus-hour work weeks that are not uncommon today. Then there was the fact that, that most seniors and people under 20 usually didn't do any hunting or gathering at all. Weren't these hungry, malnourished people? Not at all, said Lee. The Juk Nguanzi were eating more than enough for people of their size and activity level. Besides hunting game, they ate a wide range of wild plant foods. When asked why they had never taken up agriculture, one of the Juk Nguanzi told Lee, why should we plant when there are so many manketi nuts in the world? There were trade-offs to this life of relative ease. The most obvious to the eyes of one arriving as Lee had from the world of Beatlemania and the newly released Ford Mustang was that the Jude had almost no stuff. Men owned a few articles of animal hide clothing, blankets, hunting equipment, and perhaps a simple handmade musical instrument of some kind. Women owned clothes, digging sticks, and a few pieces of jewelry made from wood, seeds and ostrich shells. Lee wasn't the only one to report remarkable well-being where outsiders had never expected it. Similar findings trickled in from around the globe. More than nine-tenths of our existence as a species had been spent as hunter-gatherers. Looking around themselves in the 1960s, Lee and other such researchers weren't convinced that their own culture would be as durable. When Lee reported his research at a conference in Chicago in 1966, another anthropologist, Marshall Salins, responded to the new findings. This was, when you come to think of it, the original affluent society, Salins said. There appeared to be two distinct paths that humans could take to meeting everyone's wants and needs. The first was to produce much. The second was to want little. The Jukwanzi and other hunter-gatherer cultures had developed affluence without abundance, Salins said, a lifestyle with few needs easily met from the landscape around them. Noting that hunter-gatherers frequently accumulated less food and other materials than was readily available, Salins wondered aloud about the inner meaning of running below capacity. Might it be, he said, that such restraint made for a more fulfilling, contented life than endlessly changing more money, or en- endlessly chasing more money and possessions. The scientists agreed this would be a difficult question to answer for the most brutal of reasons. The time is rapidly approaching, they recorded in the conference notes, when there will be no hunters left to study. The hunter-gatherers themselves had other plans, and they endured despite relentless assaults on their lands and cultures. Den secluded by the desert at the end of a long sandy track, is among the jukun villages where the hunting spirit is still said to be strong. Gitkau gives the immediate impression of having always been a hunter-gatherer, a holdout against the crush of globalized life. In fact, this does not turn out to be true. For a time, he served in the South African army. Later, he held a government job in Chumkwe, earning money to spend in the shops. He has watched TV, driven in vehicles, eaten food imported from around the world, witnessed the arrival of the mobile phone. Always it seemed to him to be an uncertain, precarious, vulnerable way to live, almost entirely dependent on forces beyond one's control. Then he stopped. He chose to leave it behind. All the time I was thinking of going back to the old knowledge. It was always my dream, Gitkao says. I came back to the village and I will stay forever, Hunting.
1: Great. Thank you so much, James. That was wonderful. All right. Well, uh, thank you again. That's James McKinnon, whose book, The Day the World Stops Shopping, is available in both bookstores and libraries. We encourage everyone to uh, check it out, as well as James's many other books and essays. Thanks again. James, uh, we I think we may be talking to you again soon about some uh, nonfiction tips.
2: Great, my pleasure.